If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Exodus chapter 11. We'll begin reading that chapter in just a couple of moments. If you forgot your Bible with you this morning, if you don't have it with you, you can find a black Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus 11 on page 49 of that Bible. Uh, John Wycliffe is what many people called a pre-Reformation reformer. He lived some 200 years before the meat of the Reformation really came about, especially in his home country of England, and he had many attitudes and opinions which made him a target for many people who would hate the same kind of things coming out of Luther and others. He argued, for instance, that all authority was to serve, not to elicit the service of others. So when authorities, no matter how they might tie themselves to the Bible, got that wrong, when they held authority, when they moved with judgment and power in order to have others serve them instead of serving the others. They were illegitimate regardless of who they were, whether governments, whether churches. He argued even worse that the true church was not the pope and the hierarchy, but the true church were the people of God. Even worse than that, he argued that scripture was the center of all authority for the Christian and that the Pope's claim to universal papacy over all true Christians was fraudulent. You might not believe this, but that didn't sit well with people. Nevertheless, because of the context that he was in at the time, he was able to say these things, and although he was well-known, he was able to live out the rest of his life, not maybe the way he wanted to, but he died of natural causes. But then his writings got picked up by others, and they started to latch on to certain things, and this didn't sit well. So the church eventually called a, a council in 1415 called the Council of Constance. And there, in order to quell his writings, they called him a heretic. But, for good measure, they couldn't just call him a heretic and leave him buried where he was. He was buried on consecrated ground, so they dug him up. But, for good measure... They couldn't just dig him up. They got to do something with the bones, and so they burned the bones as they would any other heretic. As I have a professor, every time I talk about Wycliffe, I, I love this little line. He says, if you have to die by, uh, if you have got to die a martyr's death, this is the way to do it. Do it after you've already died. So, word to the wise. But for good measure, they then threw them in the river in order that they might be flushed out to sea. We know of many stories where seem, things seem to snowball and get out of control. Often we use this expression, for a good measure, just to make sure that the point was received. The Catholic Church could leave no doubt. Wycliffe was a heretic. Wycliffe was out of bounds. We think the Catholic Church was wrong in that, but we can understand the point that they were trying to make. Get the point across. God, so far in Exodus, has an absolutely stellar and undefeated record against Pharaoh, against Pharaoh's servants, and against the gods of Egypt, 9-0, and oh, undefeated. It's been an utter and total skunking up to this point. But here is where we add, for good measure. Because God needs to make sure that the point gets across. He's not done with what he came to do. There is, as it were, unfinished business. There's one more work, one more plague, one more sign, one more wonder to bring upon the people of Egypt so that Egypt, all of its people, and Pharaoh will not just allow the Israelites to go, but they will forcefully throw them out. This act is to be recalled and remembered forever. The children of the Israelites 
were not going to play with frogs to remember God's work in Israel. They weren't going to bring it to mind when they saw hail fall from the sky. But yearly, they were to do it at a feast. Yearly, they were to remember not the other plagues, but this plague, the death of the firstborn, when God passed over them in mercy. Today, we're introduced to the story of the Passover. We will finish the historical account of that next week. But today, we simply get an introduction to it. God's own words about the importance that this particular passage, this particular event in the life of Israel has. It is nothing less than the apex of all of the wonders and signs. It stands as central to the entire book of Exodus and has lasting import even for Christians today. So let us consider the meaning of the Passover. Like the child at the end of our passage who asks his father, Father, what is the meaning of this service? Let us ask that of our own father as we go to his word. Let us read, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his hand. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It 
is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of our God. First thing I want to bring to your attention is the curse of the Passover is death. The curse of the Passover is death. God makes a promise to every single person who is in his hearing. There is death coming. Death is coming this evening. At midnight, I will strike all of Egypt. The last portion of the signs and wonders, God has allowed a clear distinction between his people and between the Egyptians based upon who has the the plagues come upon them. Yes, the river turning to blood and the frogs, the gnats. These things happen to all, but since the fourth plague, since the flies or the stinging insects have come, God has made a clear distinction between the people. Those flies will not enter the land of Goshen. The darkness will not enter the land of Goshen. The hail will not enter the land of Goshen. There will be a sparing of my people so that you will know that there will be a distinction. And even here, God gives a small distinction. The dogs won't growl at you. But death is coming for everyone. 
This is one of the reasons why he talks not only about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household, as Moses stands before Pharaoh and gives him a very clear warning, Pharaoh, even you will have your son die. But then he also talks about the slave girl. Clearly the slave girl was referring to an Israelite. Death will come for you. At some level, we're leaving pictures behind. This is the finality of all of the plagues, the very end that all of the plagues were obviously pushing for. The rest of the plagues, even if they were hard, even if they had difficulty, even if they were annoyances, were all just preparation for this one. Because even before, there was always mercy. The boils seemed to go away. The hail that fell did indeed kill what was ever out in the field, but God told them clearly, it's coming to the fields. If you care about your servants, if you care about your livestock, bring them in. Death was not inevitable, but now there is no place to go in. There is no place to to get out of this. Death is coming, and it's coming for all. There is no hiding from it. The Egyptians had to have known the truthfulness of what Moses was saying to them. They knew of him. They thought highly of him. Every time Moses had opened his mouth and spoken to them, those things happened. He spoke for this God. This God was true to his promises and true to his word. This was the very thing that compelled them to act the way they did. The very thing that was to compel the Israelites to act the way they do. They believe that what Moses is saying is true. We too need to feel the weight of the difficulties that we face in life short of death. We have problems every day. We've got difficulties. Some days are better than others, but you're going to face problems in your life. You're going to face difficulties in your life. Some more major than others, but you will. And God is indeed the one who is in control. He has affirmed that those difficulties should come upon you, and he has given their resolution. Why does he do these things? Why does God allow people to suffer? Why does God bring all of the other plagues if he was going to drop the hammer on the last? If for no other reason than this. All of the other plagues tell you that when he says the hammer is coming, you believe the hammer is coming. It's to prove his trustworthiness, to prove that what he is saying is right and should be responded to. This is exactly what the plagues in Egypt were for. Amos, centuries later, looking back on the plagues of Egypt and what is coming to the people of Israel, argues this very way. Don't you see that the difficulties that God has given you in life are like those plagues in in Egypt? They are to prove that he is the only one who can offer you protection. He is to prove that he is good to his word. He will bring death to you. Amos says this in Amos 4.10, I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Those wounds are there to remind you of God that your full and final death is coming, and it's coming over all people. But secondly, there is a distinct result of the Passover. The result of the Passover is indeed distinction. So death seems to be coming upon all, but God already has something in place to make this distinction between Israel and Egypt. But it's different than the distinction that was made in the past. The distinction is now switched. In the past, the people of Israel did nothing. They sat there in Goshen while they were protected. They walked around freely while they were protected. 
They could see the Egyptians were dark. They had no boils. The Egyptians were covered. They, they did nothing to protect themselves. God's distinction in each of those cases was to say, I want you to know who my people are and who they are not. The Egyptians, not my people. Israel, my people. It's as if when we get to the Passover, God is allowing that distinction to be switched on its head. He's saying, all along, I've made it clear that you are my people. Now, you get to declare who you are. Who are you? Who are you? God is not going to force this distinction on them. If you don't want to be one of my people, don't kill the lamb. Don't put the blood. You risk being part of Egypt. You go ahead and you do that. But otherwise, if you are my people, this is how you will act. You will declare that you are mine by doing this. Will you be the Egyptians or you will be the Lord's? This is where we get the first reminder won't be the last. The celebration of the Passover is nothing less than the remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done. The Passover comes and the Passover is remembered. Jesus Christ dies and is resurrected as the Passover lamb and then we remember it in the Lord's Supper. These things are not hard parallels to find. These are indeed laid out for us in the entirety of the Christian church, in the entirety of the New Testament. This is sort of the pattern that is built up. In all of the synoptics, this is the pattern that is given to us. Even from the beginning of the Gospel of John, John has the Baptist calling out, Behold the Lamb of God, which is not just a general reference to a sacrifice, but given the way John lays out his Gospel, is quite clearly meant to say, this is the Passover lamb. This is the one who will take away the sin, who will allow God's wrath to pass over you. So it's important that we realize what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. When you come forward on the days when we celebrate it and you take of the Lord's Supper, you are making yourself declare that you are the Lord's and that there is a distinction between you and Egypt. There is a distinction between you and the world. In the book of John, Jesus gives some incredibly difficult words. He says, you have to eat my flesh and you've got to drink my blood. And some of the people who had followed him up to that time were like, hey, this is getting a little surreal for me. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what you mean by that, but, but there's the line and then there's where Jesus was and, and we, I, can't, I can't ride that train anymore, so I'm going to get off here. And, and Jesus looks at those disciples closest to him and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, where are we going to turn? What option do we have? Out there is death, Lord. Out there is inevitability of dying and perishing forever. With you, there are the words of eternal life. To whom shall we turn? Peter declares he is the Holy One of God. And more than that, he declares there is no leaving you. Every time we come forward and we take of the body and the blood, we are declaring that we are distinct from the rest of the world. We do not belong to it anymore. We are not of it. We are not from it. We are from God, being born again by the work of the Spirit upon our lives. Taking the supper is a turning of your back on the world 
and turning toward Christ yet again for salvation and security. This is the distinction between you and the world. Third, the calendar of the Passover is utterly adapted. It is redone. It is adapted. When chapter 12 begins, God doesn't start by declaring what's going to happen in the Passover. He starts by saying, this is the new world for you. This is the new year for you. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Listen, calendars and years are important. My famous friend, Neil deGrasse Tyson, whom I love so much, who is a noted curmudgeon in almost everything, every year just about puts out a tweet about the stupidity of New Year's. 2018, he said, not that anyone's asked. That's all you need to know right there. But New Year's Day on the Gregorian calendar is a cosmically arbitrary event carrying no astronomical significance at all. Thanks for the science help, wet blanket. So the deal is that that's true. As far as astronomy goes, there really isn't. It's just kind of an arbitrary thing that we set. But he is dead wrong that New Year's days, New Year's celebration, the turning of the world around the sun to bring back spring and flowering after the death of winter is incredibly meaningful. Much less so to people in Florida, much more so to people here in Michigan. But nevertheless, to everyone, it holds, in almost every culture, it holds incredible significance. This is why we make New Year's resolutions, because there's newness coming. We know that this is pictured for us. This is why it's held in January, at the the worst part of winter, because now we know that there is good coming for us. Spring is coming. Hope is coming. Newness is coming. God certainly understands this better than Neil deGrasse Tyson So this event is to mark out the new year for them. The hope of newness, the reminder of mercy, is to be found entangled with and consolidated and coordinated around the Passover. This now is the new beginning for you. This is where your hope is. This is where mercy is found. And so it is with us. The hope of new things, the mark of God's ever-present mercy is found in the death of Jesus, celebrated yearly, remembered weekly, lived out daily. Which leads to the next point. Number four, the lamb of the Passover is sacrifice. The lamb of the Passover is sacrifice. This is not to be just another meal. God doesn't say, listen, I've got this work to do. You're going to need to put blood on the doorposts, so if you're going to kill something, you might as well eat it anyways, so go ahead and have yourself a little feast, and, and we'll work out the details later. It's not, it's not like that at all. This isn't you sitting down and saying, well, we're going to have lamb. What is our favorite way to cook it? What can we have with it? It's not a meal that you get to understand and, and to come up with your own rites and practices around. It is a special meal, and therefore it has special instructions for it is nothing less than a sacrifice. It is a special offering to God. Indeed, I think that this is to become the model because no other sacrifices have been prescribed by God up to this point. This is to be the model on which all other sacrifices are going to kind of revolve around. Not in every way the specifics, but this is the first of them. Aaron And the other priests, as we will find later in Revelation, will do many of the things that are prescribed here. And this lamb and the meal, therefore, as sacrifices are to have certain qualities. First, it is to be blemishless. 
It is to be spotless, meaning that as far as the outside is concerned, the lamb has no obvious defects. It would make sense. If you had a lamb with a broken leg, you're not going to fetch much for it at the market. Frankly, it's probably going to have to die anyways. That might as well be the lamb that you kill. And God says you absolutely cannot do that. I know that that makes economic sense. I know that that makes home sense. I know that 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 in one way, shape, or form is logical, but that doesn't work here. You kill for me a spotless lamb, the best of the lambs. Because this is a sacrifice, God will accept only the best. He will not get the second rate. As a man once said, anything less than the best is a felony. Anything blemished is not worthy of being a sacrifice to God. It is to be spotless. It is to be roasted. Roasting over fire is important. All of the offerings that you're going to find later are roasted over the fire, especially done by Aaron and the priests, and especially meat. It is just not a meal to be prepared in any way you desire, but to be prepared by being roasted. And, what's more, it is to be burned. Like all meat offerings that are given up to the Lord, whatever remains in the sacrifice is to be burned utterly and completely, which is odd, because God knows that his people are going to be driven out and driven out to the desert. It's not like there is going to be leaping cattle flying around that they can just butcher as they please. It would be nice to be able to take a meal. I probably wouldn't last long, but God is very clear. There will be no Tupperware. There is no jerky that's going to be made. You are going to eat it, and whatever is left over, you are going to burn completely. Because it's not about your sustenance. It's not about you enjoying it so much as it is a sacrifice to me. What kind of sacrifice is it? There are other sacrifices that we find in Scripture. There are free will sacrifices, thanksgiving sacrifices. That brings us to point five. The blood of the Passover is, makes it clear that this is a substitutionary sacrifice. The blood of the Passover implies that this is a substitute. The lamb is just quite clearly a substitute. The fire and the burning of the meat are meant to show the anger and the wrath of God. This is why sacrifices typically were given over fire. This is why God's anger and his wrath is most often pictured as fire. This is why hell is most often pictured as fire. God's anger burns against sin and against rebellion. The burning of the lamb is a picture of the allowing of God's venting anger to consume the sins of his people and even, in this case, to consume the people, even if by a substitute. The sacrifice is meant to take the anger of God directly. This is why you can't eat it raw. Because eating it raw means that the fire hasn't touched it. This is why you can't boil it. Because boiling it provides some sort of medium in between the fire and the lamb itself. No, the lamb needs to be directly in contact with the anger of the Lord. You need to see that it's not mediated through something else, but it is connected directly to the fire of the Lord burning it up. This is quite clear that it is a substitute for the firstborn. The death of the firstborn isn't simply passed off. God doesn't say, I'm going to go through Egypt. I'm going to kill all the firstborn kids. But if you're an Israelite, just kind of chill for the night. It'll be okay for you. No, he, he says, you, you have to provide this. 
the killing of the lamb is the substitute for the killing of the firstborn. The lamb takes the place of the firstborn and dies for them. It's interesting, if we would tell this story to our children, we would probably say it something like this. The Israelites were to take a a lamb. They were to kill it. And they were to cut it open and let the blood drain into a basin. And then they were going to take this blood, and they would take some hyssop, and they would go outside, and on the the doorpost and the lintel, they they were going to apply this blood. They were going to go back inside. And then God would see the blood as he came by on your door. And looking at your blood, that blood would be a sign to God that there has been a death already. And he will accept that death for the death of the firstborn, and he will pass by. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is a really good summary of what's going on here. But there is an interesting bit that Exodus lays out for us that we shouldn't miss. It's in verse 13 of chapter 12. This is what God says. The blood shall be a sign not for me, but for you. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. He said, the significance of this isn't really truly for me. God sees the blood and he does pass over, but the blood is meant to be a sign for you. It is a sign that death is indeed going to happen. It is the fate of us all. But God will provide a substitute. The sign is a picture of the fact that there is always a substitute that is going to be needed. It's a reminder that death will indeed come for you unless there is a substitute out there. He wants to draw their attention quite concretely and as concretely as he can to the fact that this lamb is dying for you. And Jesus is quite clearly our substitute sacrifice. He, like the lamb, is spotless, without sin or blemish. He felt the fire of God's anger for us. He was completely sacrificed, completely burned upon the altar, not having hardship placed on him, not having some difficulties thrown his way. But he took all of the anger and was completely and utterly consumed by it taking on death in its fullness. And more than that, even as we read, the sacrifice was not to be cut up in parts and roasted separately, but the head and everything was to be together. He is a whole sacrifice. He is a full sacrifice. He's not part human. He's not half God, half human. But he is a full human man who offers himself fully as a representative of all of us. So like the Israelites place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintels of your hearts. For this is your salvation and this is the only path by which God will ever pass over you. Sixth, the meat of the Passover is consecrated. The meat of the Passover is consecrated. The meat itself is holy and set aside. The eating of the meat was going to have special significance for the people again It's interesting that it is a sacrifice, but God lets the people eat of it. This is unusual because when you go again later, if this is to be the pattern for how all sacrifices were going to maintain, the people were not so much allowed to eat the sacrifices that they brought. That was primarily the prerogative of Aaron and the priests. Eating the meat consecrated them as well. It wasn't just the meat being consecrated. They were consecrated. God hasn't just given them a nice meal. He is setting them aside as his people, as priests for him. 
This, in fact, is what Exodus sets up for us as God's expectation for his people. In Exodus 19, it seems as though God is very content to make the entire nation a nation of priests. They fail in that. We will deal with that at the time. But while that is God's intention, it doesn't happen in Israel, but it does happen for us. Again, we live this out. In Peter's words, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Every time you come and you eat of the food that is given on the altar, you eat of the body, you drink of the blood, you are eating that which has been consecrated and given over for you. You become a priest in the temple of God. You are a family, a royal nation, a holy people. And as such, we are then to do what priests do. We are to instruct the wayward, turn the foolish back to knowing the Lord. Paul says that we do this in the very taking of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, he says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's not saying the church ought to proclaim the Lord's death when you take this. He says when you walk down that aisle, when you collect together and you take the bread and you take the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That proclamation does not stop with the taking of the Lord's Supper, but is lived out in every day of our lives. Proclaim the Lord's death because you are a consecrated priest taking the food that belongs to the priests. Seventh, the feast of the Passover is remembrance. The act of the Passover were not just to be experienced, but they were to be passed on. Sometimes these little details we we find somewhat unimportant. God seems to place a lot of importance on. And we are to remember what happened here. And specifically, the Israelites were to remember what happened here and the context in which their deliverance was set and how God gave them their freedom. And they were to pass down this remembrance to their children and their children to their children forever and evermore. What did God ask them to remember when future generations would eat this meal? He asked them to remember their bitterness. They were to use bitter herbs on their food. For the lives that they had in the land of Egypt were bitter. In Exodus 1.14, The last time we had heard this word bitter, we heard it here. The Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. They they had to remember where they came from. Human beings have this immense ability to remember things only as they want to remember them and not as they actually were. We have an astute ability to do that. In just a couple of chapters, you're just going to have to let this sort of rabbit trail go for a second. In just a couple of chapters, we're going to have the Red Sea incident, okay? God is going to split the sea in two. The Israelites will pass literally through death and come out on the other side while the Red Sea then folds back on the Egyptians, killing the whole of them. Then in Exodus 15, the people are going to reach the pinnacle of all Israelite society as they stand on the far shore and sing the praises of God for what he has just done for them. Almost an entire chapter's worth of it, all the way through verse 18 of that 15th chapter. They are going to sing to God. That bit of passage ends in verse 21 where Miriam then sings a song to them saying, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Absolutely 
pinnacle. Next verse. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went there three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which just means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw the log in the water, and the water became sweet. So they, they were going through the desert, and the desert is called a desert because it doesn't have any water, and they couldn't find water, and they started to grumble against Moses. They came up to a place that actually had water, which is brilliant. It seems like their deliverance, and they, they know that they can't drink this. Bitter water simply means that they, they can't drink it. And notice, by the way, this is the next time we hear the word bitter. They can't drink the bitter water. So God says, hey, there's a log, throw it in. The log probably doesn't have any special properties. It's just to show that God is the one who's doing this. The water then becomes sweet. It's drinkable. God goes on to say this. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ears to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am their Lord. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. God says, I will make this bitter water clean, but then I'm going to take you to a better place. If you would just shut up and let me be good to you, I will be good to you. I did all that stuff to the Egyptians. I've been kind to you. We're two months, we're two months removed from the Red Sea. Not even, actually. You'll find a month, 18 days, 15 days. Very next thing, chapter 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. 15 days of the second month. A month and a half. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Thirty, forty-five days? Forty-six days? Forty-six days. They, they just saw God do more than you and I could ever hope to see him do. Constantly, faithfully being good to them. I wish we were dead. Why? Would we have died in the land of Egypt? When we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger when they think back just two months later, when they think back to the Exodus, when they think back to Egypt, what they're thinking of is completely backwards from their experience. They're they're thinking, they're dreaming of, of meat and overflowing bread. Think of all the goodness that we had. Think of all the fun that we had. Don't you remember that game we played? What was that? Yeah, it was a find the straw or you're gonna get beaten senseless. That was fun. We have this way of just remembering what we want to remember. So God says, when you eat this Passover, you have to eat it with bitter herbs to remind you of where you were, to remind you of the difficulty that that place had for you. 
We're always to remember where we came from. I am on the record and I stand by that the Lord's Supper is not to be a dour, scrunch up your face and think of how evil you are type of meal. It is not there to make you feel bad, but it is there to lead you into thanksgiving, which is why it's called the Eucharist. Yet still, the sweetness of that meal is enhanced when we recall and remember the reason why there is a body broken and blood spilled for us. It was, as the song says, that we sing often when we take the Lord's Supper, my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And it is easy, friends, to look back on your life and to remember your life of sin and only the pleasures that came from it. It is easy to look back and to remember the laughter and the goodness and the pleasure that you felt. And not to remember the bitterness, the lostness, the hopelessness, and the depravity in which you stood. We remember the meat and forget the straw. This is why God makes his people eat bitter herbs, to remind them of where they came from. And they are to eat it with urgency. Everything about this screams of their urgency. Their dress screams of the urgency that they were to have. In 12, 11, he begins to talk about this. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Even putting the food into your mouth ought to be in haste. This is how I eat every meal. It's how everyone ought to eat every meal because it's biblical. You are to eat in haste. God says everything about this is to go. It's to go. Because this night, and it's interesting, this whole bit about even the unleavened bread, God says this as though this is the way you are to eat it, and then we find out this is the way it actually happens later on, but it only happens that way because of the emergency of the situation. They were trying to leaven bread, but they couldn't leaven bread. They had to go in a hurry because the people came to them and said, listen, you're, you're gone. You're gone. We will all die if you stay here. Get up and go. We don't want to see you again. And God says, you always have to eat it like that. You always have to eat it like I am right around the corner. And this especially speaks of the fact that the Passover was not an end in itself. God is telling them, when you remember the Passover, you are to eat it like you're dressed and ready to go. Because that deliverance was not the only deliverance. And you've got to be ready when my full and final and complete deliverance comes. Do we feel that sense of urgency? The point was that the people had to be ready for what was going to happen. We are given these instructions by our Lord. Luke 12, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes in and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what time the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's not in the context of the Lord's Supper, but it's the same idea. You are to always be ready, always be ready for the return of the Lord. Even, again, in the Lord's Supper, we have this reminder. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is this reminder that when we take it, we are to be preparing ourselves for his return so that we might be ready, dressed for action. 
just like those in the Passover were. There is this looming question over this, which has always kind of bothered me. I think I have a partial answer for it. Maybe it's never bothered you, and maybe I can bother you with it today. Why the firstborn? More, more importantly than that, I guess I would want to say, why only the firstborn? It seems like, we even talk about death coming for everybody, this is a limited sort of judgment. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You would expect it to be everybody in Egypt or every male in Egypt or something like that. It, just it being the firstborn seems a little bit odd. Imagine that you're the secondborn and you hear this news. You look at your older brother, you slap him on the back, you say, well, that's a tough spot, old chap. You know, if, when you go, I get your Legos, right? Now, obviously, it's going to affect every family. But if you're the firstborn child and you're the secondborn child, you react to this news differently. The secondborn child might be afraid that he's going to lose his older brother in some situations, gleeful a little bit, right? The older brother is worried about something completely different, right? And so there's, there's this weird disconnect. And Pharaoh's life isn't threatened, but his son's life is threatened. It's strange. Why the firstborn? Well, remember this, that for Egypt, the point of this wasn't to decimate them and completely wipe them off the map. The point of this, as far as God is concerned, is to show his mighty hand and powerful work so much that the Israelites will become so distasteful to them that they will be ushered unceremoniously out of the country. We'll get to this whole bit of them taking jewelry and gold from them next week. But nevertheless, that is the purpose for God when it comes to Egypt. But for the Hebrews, there is quite a significance after all, the very first time that we were introduced to this idea of firstborn was in Exodus 4.22 when Moses was instructed to go to Pharaoh and say, Israel is my firstborn. What God is threatening is the destruction of the nation unless there is a sacrifice for them because they are his firstborn. In other words, if they don't act in faith here, there will be no nation. If they don't do what is expected of them here, there will be no salvation. And in Christ, the Passover is both fulfilled and interestingly folds in on itself. For he is indeed the firstborn over all creation, though only and the one begotten of God, the Son of God. And yet he is at the same time the lamb that was slain. He is the death of the firstborn for us. He is the lamb who is slain. He is both. God promises that he will take the firstborn because he is doing that in Christ. He will actually take the firstborn. And that will be a substitute for all of Israel. And so, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we trust in his word, when we believe in him, when we give our lives over to him, this is how we remember him. As the firstborn who was indeed slain by the word of God, as the Lamb who indeed did lay down his life as a substitution for us. And in doing so, we worship our God. Let us pray. Jesus, our great Redeemer, our Savior and our Sustainer, the Lamb who was slain for our sin and raised that we might know life, we praise you and thank you this morning for your faithfulness and grace. How utterly lost we were, how oppressed and hopeless without you. Bitter were our lives 
And there was no goodness to be found in the things of which now, knowing your goodness and love, we are ashamed of. The end of those things is death. But you have given us life in our Lord Jesus Christ. May our praises be honoring to you, our lives exemplary by the help of the Spirit, and our hope always firm in you. In your precious name, we pray these things. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, worthy of worship. <laughs>